Brought to you direct from Studio 3B at Baird Brothers Fine Hardwoods, the American Hardwood Advisor is your source for trends, tips, and insights into how the building industry has evolved. Join me, Steve Stack, along with guest builders and industry leaders as we talk shop and go in-depth on what it takes to be the best of the best. Dive into topics like architecture, industry trends, project plans, historical tools, tricks of the trade, and life's lessons from more than six decades of experience in the hardwood lumber business. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Steve Stack, Baird Brothers Fine Hardwoods, Canfield, Ohio. Uh, we're setting down today with uh, a gentleman uh, that has a field of expertise that really aligns with Baird Brothers Fine Hardwoods. Mike? Yes. Welcome. Thank welcome you very much. Welcome to Studio much. 3B. Pleased to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Jenkins, uh, a gentleman that we come to know uh, at an antique store or through an antique store. And, and uh, Mike has... Uh, a successful past, a retired professor from Kent State University. That's correct. And uh, then the, uh, the hobby of all hobbies, as I would look at it. Uh, Mike has devoted, what, 40 plus years in researching and learning and the antique woodworking? In Close to 50 years, but the first 10 I was learning and yeah. making mistakes. Yeah, well, that's that's good. Uh, so, again, Mike, thanks for coming down today. Just to give the folks a little a little background, uh, this workbench that we're sitting behind uh, came from a common location that you and I are familiar with, uh, uh, from Wayne out at uh, I seventy six Mall up here in Northeast Ohio. Yep, and. Uh, I was having a conversation with Wayne that I was looking for some antique tools as we were building out Studio 3B. And, and uh, if I recall correctly, a few weeks went by and uh, Bairds and myself had the opportunity to pick up a gentleman's uh, private collection. Accumulation or Accumulation, that, that's exactly what it was. And there was a little bit of everything and anything. So, I went back up to I-76 and I, I was telling Wayne at the counter, I said, Wayne, I said, I said, look at this stuff that I picked up. And, and it was walls in the garage and, and uh, he says, I got somebody you need to talk to. And from the counter there at the antique mall, he dialed your number up and he says, Steve, meet Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a brief conversation and I, I introduced uh, what we were up to and, and uh, then we had a couple other phone conversations and you came down and, and you looked at our stuff and, and just, I kind of knew it, but you reaffirmed that there was some junk, there were some wall hangers and there was a couple decent pieces. More than a couple. And, and so uh, that day was supposed to be a, a, a one hour visit. I think it turned into two, two and a half hours and, and uh, we we had good conversation and and at that moment we knew that we wanted to have you back to sit down and and speak with us and to folks out there watching uh on on our youtube content or listening on our podcast uh, 
this is a great opportunity to something you've done a lot of your life, educate, uh, pass information along, and, and tell us some of the backstories on some of these tools that we're going to be discussing. I look so, forward to it. So I think I think I had the right account of of how we how we met and and uh, and I thank I thank Wayne every time I'm up there for the introduction. But sitting behind this desk, uh, this is the workbench. <laughs> being used as our interview desk. <laughs> Stand corrected, Steve. <laughs> and and this came from. Uh, our friend Wayne up there uh, at the I-76 mall. At the I-76 antique mall, yeah, and and uh, through conversation, would would you say you have 120 of these at home? <laughs> That's a push. I've probably owned that many in my life, but uh, I have eight at home now. There's there's a great story. Now this this particular bench came out of Michigan. Uh, uh, maybe Grand Rapids, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to look at the tag, but tell us, tell us a little about uh, you. You, I know you know more than I do about the different functions that that this bench would would use or would have been used uh, for for woodworkers and carpenters. It's got multiple uses. It has a front vise, and it has a tail vise, and you can clamp wood in there and work on the wood. It, you can see these square holes, those are called dog holes, and you would put dogs in, just sticks of metal or wood, and you can hold things between them. So for example, you would put a dog in the tail vise, and you would put a dog here, and between those two dogs you would clamp a board, and now the board is secure and you can plane on it or you can carve on it or something like that. And then the little helper board out front. That is called the board jack, and that was used to act as, as an auxiliary support for something that was in your shoulder vise if it was too long. So if you wanted to put a six-foot board in, this little vise isn't going to hold it if you're going to be playing at both ends. It's going to, it's going to move on you. So now you can anchor it by putting a, a dowel in one of those holes in the board jack put the other end down here, and it's secure. So that was a built-in helper? Yes. Right? This is called the tool tray, this little recessed area back here. And the purpose of this is, if you've got a board up here and you're moving it around, you don't want to knock all your tools on the floor, so the tools are in down this here, recessed area. Down here, out sure. of the way? Yes. Yeah. Very, very, very common sense approach. Yes. Very common sense. This is a manufactured one. Uh, uh, these are multiple, looks like one, two, three, maybe five or six pieces of wood glued together. And uh, the earlier ones, this will be a solid piece of wood. Uh, one of the, the benches I have at home, that's probably a 22 inch piece of maple. Yeah, one solid piece. Yes. Yeah. Four inches thick and seven and a half feet long. One of the things I notice on this bench, uh, some of the homemade ones versus the manufactured pieces, mm -hmm. you can knock this down by loosening, I think it's four bolts, and ship this in a flat box. Yes. And, and I know this particular company, 
they shipped these things all over when they were being manufactured, whether it be to woodworking shops or to schools, uh, industry uh, companies, and so forth. Um, yeah, and at the time this was made, which is probably around 1920 or so, there were a lot of furniture manufacturers that might have uh, 20 of these in a workshop yeah. with one person working at each bench, and they were all participating in some aspect of the furniture yeah. industry. That was their assembly line. Yes. A friend of mine's father worked for a furniture company, and he had his own bench, and his son now has it. Yeah, and, and, and in that, you know, I'll use a, a chair as an example. Uh, the back uh, spindle staves had to be manufactured, the seat had to be manufactured, possibly the arms. So they might have different stations performing different parts and pieces. No question. Before it went to assembly. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's interesting in that. Uh, and there, there's, there's a, a population out there that still find these an invaluable tool. They're used for a variety of purposes, frequently kitchen islands. Um, I've seen them used as credenzas and offices. Uh, so a lot of the uses are not necessarily involved with woodworking today. Right. But they should be. And, and there, there is a group of people out there, and I think the word you used as, as a description was, they're referred to as users. Yes. Whether it be this workbench or some of the hand tools that we're going to talk about uh, in the future. Uh, so, and even in, in our little workshop here, we have not something as dedicated as this, but we still have workbenches. Yes. Flat top workbenches. So you can get projects up in front of you and, and yep. perform the task at hand. Um, so a very, if you were a woodworker in the day, you wanted one of these. You needed one of these. Right. Yes. Because there's, they're just like, just like the little assist uh, uh, bar out front there. You didn't have somebody to hold the board for you. You're working by yourself. So there it was in this nice, compact, very well thought out piece of equipment. To a carpenter, this was, was as important to him as the hydraulic lift is to a mechanic today. Fair. You yep. can't, can't get the work done without the tools. Very, very much so. So let's go to your background a little bit. I mentioned the, the professor of Kent State University. And I didn't learn much about tools in, <laughs> in the nutrition program, but my, my father and before him, his father had a lumber yard uh, it was a, a mill and a hardware store combined, and they had crews that went out and uh, did, did construction. And from my teenage years, I was there working, observing what these cabinet makers and carpenters did and how they did it. So you were no stranger to sawdust? Uh, I, sh I shoveled a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh so at, at some point uh, through your, your time with Kent State, uh, you picked up on a hobby. Uh, it started very early, but then you started to pursue it, I should say, maybe. Yes. I, I started by going to uh, local auctions and buying 
what I could afford. And every once in a while, I'd buy something better than average, and I would keep it. And that's the started a tool collection that I maintained for about 40 years. And uh, then when I retired, I noticed I wasn't looking at my tool collection very much. I was spending more time going out and looking for tools rather than admiring my own. So I had a, an auction and sold my collection, so I no longer have a collection, but I still have an interest in I buy and sell tools. And oh, I'm I'm th I'm thinking you still have you, you still have some special pieces that you hold on to. Um, yes, I call it an investment cabinet, which is a joke. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I do put some things aside. You've invested into yes. it. <laughs> so so do you still get into the buy sell trade aspect of it? Yes. Uh, that's. That's one of the things I do in my retired time, free time. I go to auctions, I go to sales, uh, buy and sell. Yeah. Clean them up. That's, 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 and that's something, that's something folks stay tuned because at some point, whether it be today or downstream, we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, restoration and things to do and things not to do. Yes. And, and, and we'll get into that. Uh, you know, if, if someone wants to reach out, uh, uh, you know, they, they pick an old tool up at an auction or at an antique store or something, and if they wanna, if they wanna find out, well, did I pay too much for it or did I get a deal? Or is there a group that they can reach out to or you yourself, I, I, I guess uh, an appraiser type scenario? Um, I don't, I guess I wouldn't recommend an appraiser because there are a lot of regional differences in the value of tools. Um, there are tool clubs that one can participate in. Um, there is the Ohio Tool Collectors Association. There is the Midwest Tool Collectors Association. And there is the Early American Industries uh, Association. And all three of those have people of a like mind who like to buy tools and sell tools and look at tools and display them and things like that. So, so you mentioned something about varying, prices varying regionally. Yes. Did I understand you right? Well, um, perhaps not as regional now because with the internet, everything is kind of on an even keel, but I don't participate in the internet, so I don't have access to that market. There are people who do sell on the internet and they can get stronger prices. Okay, okay, and, and I was, I guess I was trying to, trying to tie it back to, in my own mind, uh, New England, very well known for some of the early furniture pieces yes. and, and uh, the availability of possible furniture tools up in that market that maybe didn't make it to the Midwest until later on. New England was settled in the 17th and 18th century, and so there's a lot more examples of early tools and early furniture there than you will find in the Midwest, which wasn't settled until perhaps the early 19th century. And if you go into Colorado, you're looking at the early 20th century. Right. And um, so there are regional differences in terms of availability, also regional differences in terms of interest. Uh, for example, if you're from coal country, coal 
to coal mining tools are much more desirable than they are in New England. Right. Uh, wrenches are much more popular in the Midwest with all the agricultural industry than they are in New England or California. And, and it makes it makes sense. That's that's where they were born out of. Yes. That that's that's interesting. Um, and you you wound up and you mentioned with with uh, your family having been involved in it that kind of directed you or steered you into. I wouldn't say steering. It, it gave me an awareness. So when I was started to buy some of these tools, I would remember some of them from Elmer or Bernard or someone like that who was working back in the right. in the shop. So that's what he had. That's you know, and that's something something as simple. And, and I don't have one here. I have I have a little foldable uh, boxwood roll. Boxwood roll, but. My dad, you know, I'll, I'll tie it back to dad. Uh, we're used to today to the the Stanley, you know, twenty footer, thirty footer tape measure. You know, put it on your waist. Dad always carried a six foot folding tape measure, wooden tape measure. Yeah. Uh, well, a wooden rule. A rule. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. To the point where, when we were when we were constructing my home, we were just putting the plates on the the, the block foundation, mm -hmm. and and uh, true story, I, I I can't make this one up and say it with a straight face. Dad, his his rule dropped out of his back pocket, right down in the hollow cinder block. So we got a flashlight, and he says, "Yeah, it's down there." What's the next thing he does? He goes down onto the basement floor area, takes his takes his hammer, and knocks out the side of the cinder block so he could retrieve his six foot roll. <laughs> and so you know what? I still got it at the house. Yeah. <laughs> Special, you know, and 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 like you said, you remembered somebody using it or had one, and 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 there's there's great stories that you know to be passed along with that. Uh, but is there is there any uh, sector of tools that that keeps your attraction more than others. I guess it's the an the short answer is yes. Stanley, Stanley was the the major manufacturer of all kinds of woodworking tools. Uh, there were a lot of competitors. Stanley was big enough that they bought most of them. And so if this little company made a level, well, Stanley said, that's a good idea. They just bought the company and incorporated the level into their line. But Stanley probably was in business for from the 1850s until maybe the 1970s when people started uh, farming out their manufacturing to other countries. And, uh, but Stanley is the, the name that people are looking for and so you'll have more interest in Stanley tools than in other manufacturers. And they they manufactured a broad range of tools. They do. They did. I don't know that they do now. Right. Right. But uh, but planes, rules, toolboxes, chisels, plumb bobs, everything that you can think of that a, a craftsman would need, Stanley had an answer for you. And they and they have. And, and you mentioned planes. They had a whole family group of different planes, 
specialty planes, exactly. block planes. Uh, they had bench planes, which were the, the tool that most carpenters would use to prepare wood for the project. But they also had, like you said, specialty planes. Uh, planes for cutting the inside or the outside of circles, shaping them. Uh, rockers. Yes. They had planes that would be used to help inset uh, hinges and locks and doors. It was... How about the barrel staves? Stanley didn't make a lot of uh, cooperage tools, but there were other companies that did. Yeah, and, and again, that was a specialty tool. Yes. Interesting. And down the road here, uh, I, I picked it up years ago, and I, I want to call it, it's a Stanley, and I believe it's a number 45. Yes. Relatively common. But I have the two boxes with the Stanley label on them of all the cutter inserts. Yes. Being in the woodworking industry, uh, I, just, I just find it amazing that the things that we do today and the way we do them versus the way they were done back in the day, the era of these woodworking tools we're discussing. And you had to have vision, you had to have patience. And then it was developed and you took pride in the quality of the piece you were working on because you exerted a lot of energy and effort into that piece. It was an, extend, an, an extension of your hand. I mean, that's what you were making. Yeah, and, and, and truly, truly an extension of your hand. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be drawing a, a molding plane across it or uh, uh, something, something I, I hadn't even thought about until I just started this sentence, uh, we take it for granted. Sandpaper, sanding sponges today. What did they do back in the day? They scraped it with a hand scraper. scrapers. Yes, to get that final finish on it. Yes. Interesting, interesting. And Stanley made scrapers. I mean, the earlier scrapers were just a piece of saw blade that you would sharpen and, and uh, scrape with. But Stanley said, well, let's make you scrapers. Know, you know, now that you mention that, I think we ran across them on your first visit, uh, I think it's been six, seven months ago, mm -hmm. maybe longer. Uh, we ran across a couple of those. It's a, a straight handle, a swivel head that you can adjust uh, to a different angle, mm -hmm. if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm remembering right. You are. And it's the two that, that we have, I believe, are four-sided scraper heads, almost a square or a triangle. One might be a triangular-shaped scraper head. But those probably weren't made by Stanley, but it was the, the same idea. Yeah. There. Now, now I know what they were for. <laughs> So, and scrapers can be used for a lot of other purposes too. Well, we, you know, we still use them today in, in our more modern uh, manufacturing facility when, when we're doing some joinery with glue and when the clamping procedure, you get some glue squeeze out at the joint and it saves on the planer knives and things in manufacturing. If you give it a quick scrape yes. and get that 
hardened glue yes. residue off of there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even today, you know, we're talking about tools 18, 1800s and, and 1900s, and, and yeah, we still we still implement that that today. Well, and scrapers were a lot older than that. I mean, they were making furniture in the 1600s, and they still had to have smooth surfaces. Yeah. Yes. Going back to uh, some of your collection, your personal collection, some of which you've dispersed, others that you still hold on to, um, what kind of things did you collect for yourself? Wow. I collected Stanley in the box. So that was Stanley tools in their original as sold boxes. Right. Uh, that was a, a, a component, but I collected measuring tools, which were rules like your little boxwood rule, uh, squares. Um, I collected molding planes that would be used to cut different profiles. Uh, molding planes are interesting both based on their profile as well as the name. Sometimes you'll see a name and it'll get your attention because he was working in 1760. So he would be an 18th century plane maker right. in America. And uh, so those, those are interesting finds when you can come across them. Going, going back to that and, and mentioning Stanley, where did they start out of, Connecticut? Uh, yes. Was it, well, I thought it was, I knew it was up east. New Britain. There you go, there you go. There's, I, 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 I was taking a stab at Connecticut and you said New Britain and I can see it on some of their tools right. now. So you like the Stanley brand? Uh, it's popular and that's what people like to buy, so that's what I like to provide for them. Well, I, th I think even, even today it's still very identifiable. Yes. People, people, the name is still out there and, and the history behind it. That, that could be a conversation that you could walk me through one day uh, because I know you know the history of Stanley like you know the back of your hand. Mm -hmm. and, and we can we can walk down that path one of these days. But you shared with me and, and I, and I want to ask and I want you to share it with the folks out here uh, watching or listening today. Uh, you, you have a favorite in your collection and it took you a number of years to acquire it. Uh, you missed it on the first go round, but you... I, I know, it was never available. <laughs> the, the story behind this is in 1979, I think, I was a graduate student at Penn State and a friend of mine and I did an outdoor antique show and another friend of mine showed up and he had a very fuzzy picture of this plow plane. And it was just absolutely the most beautiful plow plane I had ever seen or could ever imagine. And uh, I was a graduate student and didn't have any money at all, and, but I coveted it. And about 40 years later, I met the gentleman who still owned the plane and saw it, and it was just as beautiful as the fuzzy picture had indicated. And then about uh, maybe three or four years ago, after he passed, I was able to purchase it at his auction. And uh, it's... Now you're, you're referring to it as a plow plane, and, and we, don't, we don't have it with us here today as an example, but describe to the folks what it is. Is it well, metal, is it wood? Is... Uh, a, a typical plow plane, <clears throat> pardon me, is a wooden body with an adjustable fence 
that uh, will cut a groove parallel to the edge of a board at various widths. And sometimes they're made out of, frequently out of beech. Occasionally you'll see one made out of boxwood. More rarely one made out of rosewood. Uh, very scarcely you'll see one made out of ebony. Uh, this one is made out of ebony, but they decorated it. It was a presentation piece to start with, so there's sterling silver inlay, there's ivory on it, and it's signed and it's dated, and it's just wonderful. Now, who, who were the, the manufacturer of a piece like well, that? Well, this was made as a presentation piece for uh, a fellow by the name of, of Montgomery, who was the uh, shop foreman at Ohio Tool in Columbus, Ohio and it was made by his employees as a departing gift for him. Okay, and, and you just mentioned a company in Ohio, Ohio Tool, and through this process over the last eight months, a year, I've seen that name, and I wanna say it's on beach, and I could be calling it the wrong, but, uh, specialty molding planes. Yes. And Ohio Tool was a very well-known manufacturer of those molding planes, right? Am I, am I calling them right in a, in a molding plane? Or? Yes, molding planes or rabbits, uh, various wooden planes, hand planes, were made by Ohio Tool in Columbus. I think for a while they were actually using prison labor, so they were able to make a, a more affordable product. Right, right. And, and, and you, uh, going, back, going back to your, uh, your plane, uh, your plowing plane, uh, that's a special piece. That yes. was, you mentioned it's a presentation piece. Yes, it was never meant to be used. It was, it was uh, somebody's keepsake. Yes. And now it's yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. It took you how many years to catch up to it? Forty-five. Mm, so it made an impression on you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, one of these days I want you to show some photo, share some photographs with us and, and, and uh, I'm anxious to, see, to see, uh, see that piece of equipment. They didn't use that one. No. But there, there is a group out there that some refer to them as makers, others refer to them as users of the antique woodworking tools. Yes. How? I mean, are we East Coast to West Coast kind of population or spread out across the United States? And I'm taking it there's probably clubs or groups for there them are, also? There are national groups, there are local groups, and it is, because of the internet, it's universal. It's all over the country. So as we have future conversations and we introduce different tools, uh, to, to, the folks, the, to the folks watching us, uh, there, there are still users out there possibly making cabinetry, cabinet doors, or furniture pieces, chairs, uh, side tables, whatever. Case furniture. Yeah, uh, doing it the old school way with the old school tools. Yes. And, and that gives it, in my, in my thought process, that, that gives it that authentic feel 
and the joinery techniques. Well, it, it's also, you're making an heirloom for your family. I mean, it's just something that if your grandfather made it, you still treasure it. If you make it today, your grandchildren will eventually treasure it. Right, right, and, and, and that's, that's true. And, and I know in my family, there's, there's pieces that were my great-grandmothers that, that I have, or my grandmothers, yeah. and, and you, you do, you treasure them. Yep. You, you, you remember, I remember scenarios where I was just a little shaver, and that piece of furniture sat in that location of Graham's dining room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so her pineapple pie is being served on top of them. You know, that, that uh, you're right. I used to think that people collected what they remembered in their grandparents' house. And when I first started in antiques, that was oak furniture. And then it evolved into what they called the Depression era furniture. And now what seems to be hot is what's called mid-century modern. So there's less interest in oak and less interest in the Depression era furniture because this is what people remember being in their grandparents' house. And, and, and that, that, that parallels our, the, our products that we manufacture here. Right now, the, the craftsman shaker style uh, is very hot with the interior decorators and, and the scheme. So we, make, we manufacture a series of moldings to that craftsman yes. style. Uh, and the, I, I find it funny in a sense that I have mission style furniture that was built long, long ago. And now you're seeing new mission style furniture, you know, from the Midwest and, and beyond, sure. you know, the Southwest, I, I guess I should say. But so in manufacturing processes, uh, in furniture design, in uh, the tools, things, we're different yesterday, but we find history repeating itself in a sense. Well, tastes today. evolve. <laughs> you can look at it with uh, housing design. You know, you look at an allotment that was built in the 60s or the 50s, and you can say, well, that's clearly a 1950s design house, yeah. and compare it to a 1980s house, and then compare it to the, the wood structures today. They're using, you know, these beams to decorate the front of a house. That's very trendy now, but in 40 years, that's going to, uh, that's, that's a 2020 model. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And, and, and it, it cycles, it, it cycles. Uh, but Mike, we're, we're going we're gonna to take, take a little bit of a break. We've got some other stuff to talk about, folks. Uh, this is just getting you kicked off to get you introduced to Mr. Mike Jenkins and and we're gonna have we're gonna have some fun. I I'm I'm enjoying this. Uh, Mike is uh, our walking, talking Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> when it comes to antique woodworking tools and and woodworking history. So stay tuned. Follow us on on all the socials. Uh, follow us on the YouTube and uh, stick around. This one's gonna be fun. For all you folks listening, thanks for talking shop with Baird Brothers Fine Hardwoods. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to stay up to date with the American Hardwood Advisor Series, 
give us a like and subscribe. For more tips, projects, and inspiration, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or at BairdBrothers.com. Until next time, 